Mike Global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 108. 132. 118. 137. 103. 127. 103. The Senkaku Paradox, Risking Great Power War Over Small Stakes. Great to have you back in Dallas. Thanks, Jim. Great to be here. So I think we ought to start with the title. Why the Senkaku Paradox? Thank you. Yes, so the Senkaku Islands, as some people will know, but probably a lot won't, and they can be forgiven for not knowing, are tiny, unimportant, uninhabited islands in the East China Sea. But they could become important because China and Japan both claim them. I didn't realize how many there were and also just the, the, how small. Right, exactly. I think the combined land area is less than three square miles. And there's no human inhabitants. There were about 100 years ago for a brief period. I think the Japanese did some fish smelting or something for a short period. But this is just the, the signature case or the, you know, the poster child that I used for the book of where you could imagine China or Russia trying to find a way to antagonize a U.S. ally to infringe on its sovereignty just enough that it's serious, but in a small enough way, it might not cause any casualties and it might seem not worth our response. And I think this is an especially prone moment for such behavior because China and Russia would each have their reasons to try to weaken U.S. alliances or try to disrupt the way the West would respond. They wouldn't necessarily care about the land they were grabbing so much as weakening the alliances, maybe in the case of Russia, I've got some Russia cases as well, even dismantling NATO ultimately. But the Senkakus are especially uh, useful for this, making this point, because like I say, both Japan and China claim them. They both operate military forces near them and within territorial waters. We are sworn to protect Japan's claims to them, even though we have no official U.S. government position on whose islands they should be. But we have long since said that because Japan administers these islands, and I don't know what it means to administer islands where no one lives and nothing happens, but because Japan is formally considered by our decision after World War II to still have control of them, even though we have no view as to whose they should be long-term, we will help Japan defend them. In other words, you could imagine the United States and China going to war over these islands. How long has there been a question of jurisdiction? I mean, this is, is this a frozen conflict? It's not at all like Kashmir that's gone on for decades. It's a little bit newer. Uh, China's complained since the 70s, but they've only gotten active since about 2012. And listeners with good memories on this subject may recall that back around 2012, the Japanese changed their internal jurisdiction. Uh, Tokyo, the, the federal government that bought, bought the islands from a private landowner, to try to protect them from becoming a crisis in US-China or Japan-China relations. But it had just the opposite effect. The Chinese got incensed. They started provoking a lot more close encounters near the islands. And then they ultimately cut off their exports of rare earth minerals to Japan for a period of time. These are minerals needed for electronics manufacturing in order to object to how Japan had protected the islands and arrested a Chinese skipper who had gotten too close. So it's been an acute hotspot for about eight years, but the dispute sort of goes back 30 or 40, and we sort of, in a way, established the parameters for it after World War II by letting Japan keep control, but not really deciding whose they would be. So we gave Taiwan back to China, but we let the Senkakus stay within Japanese hands, and yet we didn't really have the courage of our convictions either. That sets it up for deterrence failure. 
We're really seeing a change in our defense strategy. How did Jim Mattis's national defense strategy change the focus of what we're seeing right now at the Pentagon? Secretary Mattis did indeed prioritize dealing with China and Russia, the return to great power competition in the 2018 national defense strategy. And that built on what was happening in the latter two to three years of the Obama administration, because a lot of these issues with China and Russia, as we all know, intensified around 2013, 2014. Russia seized Crimea and then started to instigate violence in the eastern part of Ukraine and then sent forces the next year into Syria. China in the South China Sea started building up these islands and putting airfields on them. And then it continued to try to provoke Japan in the East China Sea. And meanwhile, with its rate of GDP growth, China's doubling its military budget every decade. So by another few years going by, you see China move into very clearly the world's number two military spending category, far and away more, more of a defense budget than Russia, than France, Germany, Britain, Japan. So China's really becoming now the big you know, concern in terms of long-term potential. So yes, Mattis really prioritized this. Now, what does that really mean for, you know, did we shift forces out of the Middle East? Did we shift forces out of, you know, sometimes these things sound more grandiose than they really are in terms of their impact. Mattis certainly gave rhetorical emphasis to China and Russia. He put more money into research and development for new weapons that might be needed. He tried to emphasize nuclear forces a little more. He tried to make more resilience into our cyber system. So he did take some specific steps, but it's not a fundamental remake of US defense strategy either. So I, I think it's important, but sort of a course correction rather than a radical shift. You know, one of the phrases we're hearing much more often right now is asymmetric defense, and you certainly write about that. What does it mean? And give me a hypothetical example of how it might be applied. Well, the first thing it means for me is using economic warfare as part of an overall response to a small aggression. So I want to consider our toolkit to be a broader set of tools. If China takes one of these Senkaku Islands, which it could do with no casualties because no one lives there and no one defends the islands. The Japanese are sometimes there, sometimes not. And we wake up one day and there are a bunch of Chinese on these islands that we consider to be administered by Japan. In that event, I don't think that we want to fire the first shot necessarily. So I'd like to have tools of economic warfare, some of which Mr. Trump is, is now developing with the tariff war, but which could be repurposed and broadened and deepened to create a kind of an economic campaign with military deterrence to make sure China doesn't do anything worse, but not necessarily to reverse the aggression. So that's one way in which I'm talking about asymmetric defense, not just military on military. The other way, if you could imagine this crisis getting worse or maybe involving some you know, uh, inhabited places like Taiwan, then we might have to do more than just an economic response. But I might want to try to have the conflict somewhere else. Why fight China or Russia right next to their own territory? It gives them all the advantages, and it makes them nervous we're going to start attacking their interior. So give me an example. If China did something with Taiwan, what would you suggest then? The most natural example, and there's no great originality here on my part, is to impede their ability to get oil from the Persian Gulf. So we know which ships, you know, a super tanker doesn't necessarily say headed for China when it leaves the Persian Gulf, but you can track the ships and know which ones have that pattern, and you can start incapacitating them. I'd like to do it with non-lethal weapons. And, you know, uh, in some ways, again, I was writing this book for the last three years, but in some ways, countries are showing the way towards some of these tactics already, <laughs> which I don't know if it helps me or hurts me, but Iran's attacks on the tankers this spring and summer 
in the Persian Gulf sort of show the kind of responses you can do, but you can make those ships essentially immobile. And that's the place, you know, the Persian Gulf, we've got tens of thousands of US forces. We have long range bombers we can bring from the United States. We've got submarines. The Russians and the Chinese cannot compete with us in the Persian Gulf region, but the Chinese in particular need the oil that comes out of there. So that's where I would consider an asymmetric, a geographically asymmetric response. Well, having read your book, I hope it's not translated into Farsi yet. Exactly. But you know, last night as I was thinking about our talk, uh, the first word that came to my mind when I thought about the relationship between the Pentagon and the State Department was the Pentagon has emasculated the State Department. The military option seems to be always the first option, that the first arrow that is thrown. How do we move the pendulum back to diplomacy? Well, you know, one thing, the funny thing here is that I agree with your concern, but in some ways the military guys are too polite. What I mean by that is they don't dare touch anything that's economic because it's not their expertise. And the only places in the United States government where we plan war are the military commands, which means if you go to the military commands, all you've got is military officers planning military responses, even to small provocations. I don't like that. I actually want those military officers to work with people from Treasury, from State, from U.S. Trade Representative, from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and develop integrated war concepts uh, in advance that would allow us to respond to this sort of a Senkaku thing proportionately and not, without necessarily taking the first shot. So that's part of it. Also, certainly having secretaries of state who will defend the budgets, the long-term interests, the professional prerogatives of the foreign service officers who work there, I think is important. Frankly, uh, Secretary Pompeo is doing a little better. Secretary Tillerson, even though I like him and I like his worldview, he did not do a good job in this regard. He was prepared to go along with 30% reductions in the first year budget, which I think is a horrible way to reform an organization when you haven't even come up with an alternative plan. And that drove a lot of people out. And clearly rejected by Congress. Exactly. Uh, and as much as you have some Republicans in particular in Congress who are skeptical of foreign assistance and diplomacy, they did not want to contemplate cuts of this magnitude. So I think the Trump administration's made some key mistakes there on the budgetary front. Pompeo, as he says, you know, wants to give a little swagger back to state, and he certainly has the personality to do it. So I'm not so worried about his worldview, but the tools of foreign policy do need to be strengthened on the diplomatic side. And we need to send messages to young students and professionals who are thinking of joining the Foreign Service that we value this as a long-term career. You don't have to be politically correct with any one administration as long as you will do the bidding of the U.S. government. And that message needs to resonate because sometimes these days it gets lost. Are you seeing this integrated deterrence that you're talking about? Are the Chinese doing it more effectively? Well, the Chinese do use economic levers and coercion, as you know, and, and they try to use this with a lot of the countries, especially nearby, the Cambodias of the world, et cetera. And the Belt and Road Initiative that they are trying to employ to develop infrastructure throughout much of Eurasia and beyond is sort of in that same spirit. In one sense, I would commend them for realizing that national power is a combination of all these different tools, even as I would push back against the specific ways they do it. But yes, we can, to some extent, take a lesson that uh, we have all these tools. And frankly, even though I'm not a supporter of President Trump in general, and I certainly don't like how he's been handling the Ukraine situation recently, the basic understanding that a country's power doesn't just come from its military, he's right. I wanted to ask you about President Trump, because one thing in this unconventional president, 
is that he does seem to be reluctant to use military force. Is that a positive development, or in time, is that giving our adversaries, Russia and China, perhaps a comfort, confidence that they might be able to move in the manner that you have suggested? For this moment in history, I'm more in favor of it than against it, even though I'm not a Trump supporter. But we have about five or six different places around the world we're using military force every day. President Trump inherited most of those campaigns. Afghanistan, drone strikes in Pakistan, fight against the caliphate in Iraq and Syria, which is now mostly accomplished at the, the broad level, although it's not over for the long term. Occasional drone strikes or commando raids in Somalia and Libya and Niger. And Trump is still doing all this. He's just trying to avoid the next war, the seventh or eighth. And so, no, I'm not overly worried that he is somehow uh, relaxing our deterrent. And moreover, the, the sort of belligerence with which he tweets and speaks I think to some extent buys him a little bit of cover from seeming weak. Now again, I'm not trying to endorse his overall approach, but the fact that he's hesitant to retaliate against Iran, for example, I'm happy to see that. And the fact that he's not in this brinkmanship with Kim Jong-un in North Korea the way he was in 2017, I'm also happy about that. Michael, I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you about what you think is going on in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is mostly the long, slow grind. What's happening, even though we're now expecting presidential elections in coming days there. That could always be a wild card that turns everything upside down if it goes badly. Assuming a re-election of President Ghani, which is the most likely outcome, then we're just gonna see sort of this gradual war with a slight advantage to the Taliban, because they're probably controlling one or two more, one or two percent more of the country each year than the year before. So how much do they control now? They control 10 to 20 percent. The government controls 60 percent, and then 20 to 30 percent is up for grabs. Actually, I'm surprised it's that little. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm talking about population. So if you do land area, the numbers look a little different. The government's more like 50 percent. Taliban maybe closer to 25 percent. But in terms of major cities, major roads, government still is holding on. But of course, they need 20,000 NATO troops. 14,000 of whom are ours, to sustain that balance. And even with that modest buildup in the Trump period, we are still not reversing the momentum of battle. So we're going to need some kind of a negotiated settlement. We're not going to get a battlefield victory. But the good news is we don't have to be in a hurry on the negotiated settlement. I think that's good news because there is no way, however this process plays out, that's been on again, off again this fall with the Camp David almost happened and then didn't quite even if that had happened, that was the first part, and that was the easy part. The hard part is getting the Afghan government and Taliban to sit down together and negotiate power sharing. If that ever really happens, it's going to take probably two to five years to figure out a modality for that. So I think we've got to be in this yet again, even after 18 years, for the long haul. The long war continues. Yes, indeed. Well, as always, I want to thank you for being here. It's great to have you back in Dallas. You're one of our continuous repeat visitors. This is a wonderful book, and we barely scratched the surface particularly found interesting some of your forecasts for 2040. Thank you very much. Great Thanks. to be here. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And special thanks to my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith. And with that, as always, I ask, what's your Global IQ?